MSW Media. Thanks to AG1 for supporting our show. If you want to take ownership over your health, try AG1 and get free one-year supplies of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash dailybeans. That's drinkag1.com slash dailybeans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Tuesday, December 26, 2023. Very special Daily Beans. I have a couple of really great interviews for you today. First up will be Phil Williams and that will be followed by Amy McGrath. Both incredible interviews. I hope you enjoy both of them. Hey, everybody. I am really excited today to speak with investigative journalist at WTVF, News Channel 5 in Nashville. He's been at it for 25 years. You might have seen him mentioned on the John Oliver show. He's been talked about recently in The Guardian. Uh, They've talked about him on MSNBC. He's got, gosh, a Pulitzer uh, some Peabody's, four DuPont Awards, a Polk Award. He's the 2023 Columbia Journalism School's recipient of the John Chancellor Award. Please welcome investigative journalist Phil Williams. Hi, Phil. Hey, AG. And one, one correction, I don't have a Pulitzer. I was a Pulitzer finalist. Ah, a well, it's an honor to be nominated, isn't it? <laughs> it's an honor <laughs> to be a finalist, for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for joining me today. As I said in the intro, you have a long career in journalism, particularly investigative journalism. And I wanted to ask you, what prompted you to get into this business? Well, and actually, I've been in the business for um, uh, almost, I guess, 35 years, uh, if you look at everything I've, I've done. But, you know, I am a lot, like a lot of journalists of my age, I am a child of Watergate. Uh, I was just uh, in, enamored with uh, what happened with Watergate uh, I also was the kind of nerdy kid that uh, grew up reading Jack Anderson, uh, the merry-go-round columns. Uh, and so uh, people from my hometown uh, in a small town in, in Tennessee will tell you they always knew I was going to be an investigative reporter. Mm. That, that's such a cool a coincidence. It was Watergate that uh, got me interested in the Mueller investigation. I, I remember watching an MSNBC documentary called All the President's Men Revisited. And um, it, they were showing it, I guess, to kind of show the parallels between Watergate and and what was going on with um, uh, President Donald Trump at the time. And I was like, you know, this has some historical significance. And I was like, I should I should probably start a podcast about this Mueller fellow. And so <laughs> that's sort of what kicked it all off. Uh, I'm uh, very uh, fascinated by Watergate as well. So let's talk about some of the investigative reporting that's kind of launched you into the national spotlight because I think it's so important what you're doing. And I wish we had a Phil Williams in every town and every city in the United States. Let's talk about the investigative reporting that you did on Franklin mayoral candidate, Gabrielle Hansen. What, how did that start? Oh my goodness. Uh, she, she was the gift that kept, or the, the, that kept giving. Um, it, it began with someone saying, hey, you ought to pay attention. Something's not quite right with this candidate. Uh, and so from the very beginning, 
we, you know, I started with the some of the images that she was posting on social media. She was very much of a a, a MAGA uh, candidate, and yet she was posting these photos of these very diverse groups groups of people and saying, "These are my supporters." And no one seemed to recognize anyone who was in the photos. Uh, and in fact, uh, the thing that got me uh, started was someone said, "I recognize that room." where these women are uh, posing, uh, that's in Chicago. That is not in Tennessee. Uh, and so I used uh, an AI uh, image search um, program and was able to track down in one weekend several of the women in the photo. And they were like, Gabrielle who? Uh, <laughs> the, the, they did not know her, did not remember her. Uh, and so she was lifting this image to claim a diverse group of supporters uh, and, and it just snowballed from there. There were questions about whether she and her husband really lived in Tennessee or really lived in Chicago. Uh, she was very much anti-LGBTQ, and yet we were able to surface a photo of her husband in a pride parade in uh, Chicago, uh, wearing nothing but an uh, American flag Speedo. Uh, and, and, and then from there, she had claimed to have told police that she had a premonition about the Covenant School shooting that occurred in Nashville in March of, uh, of, of this year. I got the body cam uh, video from her interaction with the police officer. It never came up. Uh, and then um, at one candidate's forum, uh, she showed up with a group of white supremacists. Uh, and, and I had uh, investigated uh, th these characters before. In fact, you know, 20 plus years ago, one of them had threatened to kill me. Uh, and so I just uh, walked up and it was like homecoming week with a guy who threatened to kill me and uh, uh, asked him what he was up to. And, and, and he told me uh, and and she refused to disavow this white supremacist neo-Nazi group. And so it was just one unbelievable twist after another. At the end of the campaign, there were certain hints of Christian nationalism. Uh, and so this is uh, a, a scandal that was almost not uncovered because of you know not enough media eyeballs on this political race. Yeah, they sure do cover it a lot nationally. I mean, you know, we 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 heard a lot about uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, fabricating uh, supporters by photoshopping extra people into his rallies, or saying that his inauguration was the biggest ever. We see that uh, quite a bit. Uh, he also failed to disavow white supremacists when asked about the Proud Boys. He told everybody to stand back and stand by. Why do you think it is these MAGA candidates? I mean, I think I know the answer, but they seem to have to fabricate support, uh, perhaps because it doesn't exist in real life. Yeah, it was interesting because, um, you know, th this was a, a race for mayor in an affluent community in uh, j just south of Nashville. Uh, and th this is typically a low voter turnout race. Uh, and so she actually had probably before this scandal occurred, had a pretty good chance of being elected mayor. Uh, and I, I, I think because there was not a lot of natural energy behind the campaign, uh, that there was this need to create uh, energy that wasn't there. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and, 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 and so I, I think, you know, in this case, that's why she did it. You know, I, I, I don't know if it's an exclusive, uh, province of MAGA candidates, uh, but certainly, uh, it, it is a technique that we have seen plenty of times. Yeah, we sure have. Uh, let's talk a little bit about a candidate who actually made it through election. Uh, but now you've got your, you've dialed your sights in. I think I remember tweeting, uh, oh. Uh, Andy Ogles, Phil Williams is on the case, <laughs> you know, buckle your seatbelt. Talk, talk to us a little bit about Andy Ogles, because he kind of reminds me of a George Santos type figure uh, who's gotten much, obviously, national attention, has been indicted now on 23 felony counts, been expelled from Congress. And uh, what's going on uh, w- with Andy Ogles? He slipped in. Yeah, and uh, my interest in him came because of George Santos, because there was so much attention being paid to George Santos. And so I thought, well, let me look at our uh, congressional delegation uh, here in Tennessee and see if there was a George Santos that slipped through. Uh, and and as I was going through uh, various forums, it, it, it just jumped out at me that this guy sounds too good to be true because over and over he would claim that he was a trained economist he was he would claim that he is a trained law enforcement officer he would claim that uh, he was an expert in international sex crimes and um, and 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 he just bragged over and over about a range of knowledge and skills that just was was not natural you know there was not a natural fit for the the various skills he claimed. Um, and so then I started digging. Okay, let's let's find out about this economist stuff. Well, it turned out um, he had uh, posted on previous websites that he had degrees in international relations or uh, uh, pol- political science. Um, and and but then I started digging into uh, his claims to be a trained law enforcement enforcement officer. Uh, turned out he was he was never a full time police officer. He was a volunteer reserve deputy. But as part of that, uh, he had submitted a resume that did not show any hints of being uh, an economist. Uh, and then that led me to another place where he had applied for a job. And actually, as part of that job application, uh, had submitted his college transcript. Uh, and that revealed that he had only taken one economics course uh, in his entire college experience. That was a community college uh, introduction to economics, uh, and he got a C in it. Uh, so that was really not, not, not a whole lot of credentials to be a trained uh, economist. Uh, and, and so it, you know, we just started uh, un- unraveling his resume, just one claim after another. It reminds me of uh, Sean Eckhart, the uh, the <laughs> co-conspirator in the Nancy Kerrigan. I'm an expert in counterterrorism, international uh, counterintelligence. No, no, you're not. <laughs> and, and, and in this case, you know, his claim to be an expert in international sex crimes, uh, he had volunteered with a human trafficking organization, was briefly a paid staffer. Uh, and his his total payments for his work in international sex crimes was four thousand dollars. Okay, so big time, yeah, big time. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I appreciate you uh, looking into that, and I hope you keep pulling the threads. I'm sure you will. 
Um, something else I've noticed that, um, you know, something that's going on in Missouri, here in California, multiple states across the country, particularly with local school boards, is this school voucher uh, programs. And, and the, but basically the privatization of the Department of Education. And that's something that you're focusing on uh, right now. What, what brought that about? Well, that, that is an ongoing issue uh, here in Tennessee. Uh, and over the past year, uh, I have had a number of sources who have given me uh, access to uh, documents uh, from uh, inside uh, these groups. Uh, and, and the agenda that, that uh, some of these groups uh, portray is not uh, exactly the reality. For example, there are groups uh, that claim to just support charter schools in Tennessee, and yet these documents I obtained uh, indicate that they are working for full-out privatization of schools in, in the state. Uh, vouchers, just uh, vouchers for homeschooling. Um, and, and so it's a classic example of what draws my attention as an investigative reporter is where a, a, an interest group will claim one set of interests and and they actually have ulterior motives. Uh, and, and so th this is a recurring theme. Um, I'm working on additional stories in, for, for the near future that will kind of fine tune the, that, that point. But there, there is a well-financed effort financed by billionaires and millionaires uh, to undermine traditional public education and to privatize uh, education uh, in Tennessee across the country. And one of the arguments that they have always made is, well, this is about improving educational outcomes. Well, it turns out the latest voucher proposal here in Tennessee would provide money for uh, private schools, for homeschooling, without any regard for educational outcomes. And so suddenly, you know, that they're concerned about educational outcomes when they were trying to under, undermine traditional public schools. That's gone by the wayside. And now it's, it's full on, quote, quote unquote, parents' choice. Mm. That's interesting. That seems like a, a templated argument for privatization of basically anything. You know, I worked at the Department of Veterans Affairs for over a decade and trying to push back on the privatization there under the guise of patient's choice, veteran's choice. We, we even have the Veteran's Choice Act, uh, which opened up veterans to go out and seek private care, uh, again, for better outcomes, better health outcomes. But we are now seeing from the studies that that is not exactly, uh, in fact, not at all what happens. The wait times are longer, the outcomes are worse. Um, the privatization of everything by the billionaires, uh, the attempts to do so, I feel it, it's, they, they seem to take the same tack with the privatization of any public entity. And, and I recently posted uh, on my social media where one of the leading school choice proponents in, in, in the country has also uh, written a paper calling for what he calls police choice. Oh. And, and basically, you, you can uh, take your money that goes into your local police force and say, I'm going to use it to hire a private security company to uh, patrol in my neighborhood. Uh, and so, you know, that, that is a pretty good example of how it, it may begin with uh, VA uh, privatization. It may be school privatization. Prison. Prison privatization. Uh, and now, you know, even talking about police privatization. 
that's unbelievable. I hadn't heard about that. I'm going to I'm going to look into that uh, Phil Williams tweet uh, as well. All right, I have to take a quick break, but I want to uh, talk to you a little bit more about uh, the power of local media and independent journalism and investigative journalism. But I, like I said, I need to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. I used to be constantly stressed out. As you know, I didn't have enough energy. My digestion was causing me some serious problems. I tried everything. But what helped me the most was discovering AG1. You know, I've been drinking it for like two years now. I feel much better. My stomach problems are a thing of the past. If you're a longtime listener, you know I've been drinking AG1 for a while. And when I started drinking AG1 daily, I quickly noticed a vast improvement in how I felt day to day. And I began to feel tangible differences in my overall health. My mornings became brighter. I had a newfound energy accompanying me throughout the day. It's it's awesome. And that's because AG1 is foundational nutrition. It supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and even supporting your immune system. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, and they always refine their formula using science to create smarter, better ways to elevate your baseline health. Not only have I replaced my multivitamin, my cabinet full of supplements with AG1, But it helps my peace of mind to know that every scoop gives me prebiotics and probiotics along with digestive enzymes specifically tailored for gut support. It has been incredibly helpful. I recommend AG1 to all my family and friends because it works. I constantly hear about how much more energy they have, how thankful they are that I turn them on to such an easy and simple habit. It's just one scoop in a glass of water every morning. It's so easy to take up. You can't beat it. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why they've been a partner for so long. If you want to take ownership over your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash dailybeans. That's drinkag1.com slash dailybeans. Check it out. Everybody, welcome back. We are talking with investigative journalist Phil Williams from News Channel 5 in Nashville. And uh, before the break, I hinted at um, the power of local media. I I want you to tell me a little bit about, because, you know, like I said, I wish we had a Phil Williams in every town, in every city, doing this work, shining light on facts, you know, because as Jay Rosen says, it's the stakes, uh, not the odds, right? And uh, Christian Amanpour, I believe, said we have to be truthful, not neutral. And that's really important, a really important concept, I think, for for the free press. Uh, so talk talk a little bit about the power of, of local media and what you do. Why are we in the position where we are, where we just don't have as many local investigative journalists doing this kind of work? And, and you know, ending in things like George Santos happening. It really is the collapse of the uh, the the business model for traditional journalism. Uh, for example, in in the community, the, the the county where Gabriel Hansen was running for for mayor of Franklin, uh, in its heyday, I would um, I'm, I'm, my best estimate is there were ten to fifteen full time reporters covering this community of uh, two hundred and fifty five thousand people. Uh, today, being generous, uh, there are five, and some of those uh, reporters uh, are covering other communities as well. Uh, and so, there are just not enough eyeballs on on on, on these communities. Um, and you know, for example, I think there's a good chance, as I mentioned, that Gabriel Hansen could have been elected had someone not called and said, "Hey, put this on your radar." Uh, and in the case of uh, Congressman Ogles, 
there were some people who said, who called me and said, Hey, you need to check out this guy. And I just did not have the bandwidth at the time. Uh, I think that democracy has been challenged at the state and local level for many, many years. Uh, it just hasn't received the attention that the, the challenges to democracy at the national level have received over the years, for example, uh, Congress has become a place where essentially nothing gets done. Uh, partly that is by design to push those issues down to the state level where special interests have more influence. Uh, and so that there has been um, a greater focus by special interests uh, to set the agenda at the state house level, not necessarily at the congressional level. Uh, at the same time, the number of uh, journalists covering state houses has collapsed. Uh, and so the challenge to democracy, from my perspective, has been occurring at the state house level for many, many years, and it just has not received the attention that, that it deserves. Do you think the collapse is attributable to like the consolidation of legacy media? We see local papers going away. We see the funding going away. How do you attribute the, the stretched resources that, that we have locally? Yes to all of the above. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, the, the, the uh, journalism community is strained, you know, financially. Um, uh, a, a number of years ago at an award ceremony, I uh, talked about uh, what I called riptide thinking. Uh, and I think it actually made its way into a scholarly uh, paper after that. But uh, many years ago, when I was uh, much younger, I was caught in a riptide. And, and, and what they say is that your instincts tell you to swim to the shore. Uh, and that's the last thing you need to do. You have to swim out of the riptide before you can save yourself. And, and I think that's happened with um, legacy media that uh, facing financial challenges rather than uh, investing more into serious journalism, uh, they have cut back, which has only accelerated the, the decline. Uh, and so I, my, my thinking is that uh, legacy news organizations have tried to cut their way to success, uh, and it, it has only uh, increased the decline of, of local media. But boy, right-wing media certainly has their ish together, if you will. Um, we we see, what, 77% of people think crime rates are going up when they are actually weighed down. We see this huge disparity between the feeling about the economy and the actual economy. I, I think maybe a lot of that is attributable to that right-wing machine. Um, that is very well-funded. Um, and, you know, there was, uh, I guess, a f somebody who worked for the Trump administration. His name is Miles Taylor. He wrote a book called Blowback. And he brought in this economics analogy about um, uh, kind of dissent or speaking truth to power. It, it, it's such a simple analogy that even Andy Ogles with his one C plus uh, class in econ would understand. And he says, you know, the price of dissent is very high right now. People are subject to threats and, you know, people like the MAGA is coming after them. So how do we lower the price of dissent? We increase the supply. And I kind of feel the same way about media, but we seem to be going in the opposite direction. We're decreasing the supply of, of investigative journalists like yourself, which makes the price of that kind of work higher. Yeah. And uh, w w one of the things that um, my wife and I frequently talk about is the fact that 
um, I feel this enormous personal obligation uh, to to be out there fighting the battles, to you know, ex, you know, exposing the truth in the face of this just storm of disinformation. And 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 I do wish there were more people doing what I do because it's exhausting. Uh, there are uh, uh, attacks that come with this. Um, you know, the, the right-wing media, I, I, I post on my Twitter bio and, and other social media bios that I speak truth to power and the angry mob. And increasingly, uh, the, my job involves speaking truth to the angry mob because people you know, read something about my reporting from uh, far-right media, and suddenly they're on the attack coming after me of why I'm not telling the truth. And in fact, I am the truth teller in this situation, uh, but they have been duped into believing that I'm, I'm, I'm telling a lie. It happened with the Gabrielle Hansen uh, race in, in, in Franklin. It's happened with Andy Ogles. He, he will not talk to me, but he'll go to right-wing media to respond to my stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's happened recently uh, with um, some uh, of the writings that have uh, been leaked to one right-wing podcaster regarding the Covenant school shooting mm-hmm. uh, to claim that the Covenant school shooting was an anti-white, uh, anti-Christian hate crime. There's just not enough evidence to support that, but because I have said you cannot draw conclusions based on one page from a shooter's journal, suddenly uh, I'm getting calls telling me that I am an enemy of the people. So yeah, it would help if there were a lot more of us doing this type of reporting, uh, because it would uh, at least be you know more than one voice crying in the wind. Wouldn't be such a lightning rod for for these attacks. How do you deal with these attacks? Uh, you know, you I think you told the Daily Beast you you get quite a few of these attacks and threats. What do you ignore them? How do you how do you deal with them? Yeah, um, but by and large, uh, I, I I do try to ignore them. I mean, it, it's 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 annoying as you know, as, as you can imagine. But I can, you know, yes, I can imagine <laughs> <laughs> more, more than imagining. Um, but it, it is annoying, uh, and I just have to take periods and and that I just tune it all out, put down the phone on the weekends, and uh, just uh, just the the thing I think I realized after the uh, Gabrielle Hansen story in Franklin, Tennessee. There was such an outpouring of gratitude for my reporting. Uh, I I, uh, participated in the Franklin Christmas Parade. The the people calling out to me, thanking me, was so fulfilling. And, And I think we forget sometimes that the loudest voices don't necessarily represent the the true thinking of the people. Uh, and so at times when th- there's a lot of hate coming my way, uh, I-, I just remind myself that these are people trying to get attention. Uh, they don't necessarily represent what people are thinking. Yeah. And it's it, don't give it to them. Right. That's the, the whole Streisand effect. Um, they they are dying for you to engage uh, with them. And and the best thing, the thing I found that uh, upsets them the most is when you don't and you just let your work. I, you know, I've, I've been following you for a while now. You let your work speak for itself and it's, and people are truly grateful for it. And I think that you always come out on the right side that way. 
Yeah, and you know, in in the case of the one of the white supremacist groups, that one of the few times I responded uh, is that they uh, posted something about my late wife, uh, and uh, that uh, got some traction in in traditional media. Uh, I, I was married to someone who was an alcoholic, who, who unfortunately, um, you know, that that disease cost her her life, uh, and 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 I felt it was important in that case to say. Listen, you, you may be trying to take a shot at me based on her struggle with her disease, uh, but that is no reflection on me. And uh, you, you can take all of those kind of shots you want, but I'm going to keep on doing what, what I do. Uh, and, and, and you can be as nasty as you want, but I'm not going to stop. Yeah, that and I think telling those kinds of stories uh, takes away their power. To, exactly. to to gaslight people about those things. So sometimes it is important to speak out uh, in your own defense or in the defense of others from, from a personal point of view, because I think those lived experiences help other people feel like they're not alone and therefore they can't be attacked or gaslit for the same reasons. I, and, and I think those who uh, engage in such, such tactics are trying to run those of us who are truth tellers off of the field. Yes, 100%. And, and, and out of play. Uh, and the, the best message that I can send is I'm not going anywhere. Absolutely wonderful. And speaking of not going anywhere, uh, I read something about, uh, uh, I think a reporter had asked you about when you're retiring, right? You've been at it for 25, 35 years, if you count everything. Uh, but you said it's hard to unplug from journalism. And this really resonated with me uh, because this is, you know, what I would be doing if I were retired. So, you know, talk about un like the thought of unplugging from journalism. Have you had that thought? And, and what goes through your mind when you think like, no, I can't, I can't do that. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, you know, part of my backstory is I almost went into the ministry before I decided to become a journalist. Uh, and so that there is some sense, uh, general sense that, you know, that this is my calling. I mean, this is that this is from, you know, my, my years as a teenager when, you know, being exposed to Watergate. This is what I felt uh, I could best do to make a difference in the world. Uh, and so if you think of it as your calling, if you realize that you are, you know, fairly unique, I'm certainly not the only one, but there are not enough of us out there doing this type of work, then it becomes difficult to think about walking away. Um, now, I mean, th th there will come a time when I maybe use my talents in another way, uh, but I don't think that I will ever completely walk away from the field that that, that we are engaged in. Journalism professor, I can see it. I can see oh, it. Oh, no, no. That, uh, <laughs> I, I, I have to be more hands-on than that. <laughs> I understand. I completely understand. Uh, and I appreciate the work that you do. And I think perhaps that is the call to action, right? We need more voices. We need more investigative journalists. We need more money in local uh, and, and state journalism. Uh, and, I, you know, I think that's the call to action. Everybody grab a microphone. Start, start at it. It, you know, and and support local journalists, and 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 I think the uh, the 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 J school professors need to spend a lot of their energy talking about how we can uh, bring in reinforcements to to local media, and and not just focus exclusively on national media. Yeah, and I think that that will push the national media to do better. 
um, because, you know, everybody knows the first thing to go in a dictatorship is the free press. And so we got to keep marching on. Phil, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, I encourage everybody to follow you and find you and, and, and watch your investigative reporting. Watch your interviews that you've done with some of these folks. There's a lot that can be learned from your interview style, the way you ask questions, uh, your calm nature. You're just getting at the truth. Um, can you tell everybody where to find and, and follow you, please? Uh, Twitter uh, and uh, pr- pretty much every social media, NC5 Phil Williams is, is what you need to search for. And I appreciate that. Uh, everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. I am honored today to be joined by retired lieutenant colonel from the Marine Corps, also a former candidate for U.S. House and U.S. Senate in Kentucky. I remember she ran against good old Mitch McConnell and co-founder of Operation Saving Democracy. Please welcome Amy McGrath. Hey, it's great to be with you. It is so great to have you here today. I'm really, really excited to talk to you because I've had a kind of a string of folks on lately who are talking about how we need to put our differences aside and work together with independents and moderate Republicans to help save this republic. And that is kind of what the, uh, actually, it's exactly what Operation Saving Democracy is about. You're a co-founder with Admiral Mike Smith. Can you talk a little bit about developing this, when this organization came into being and and why? Sure. Well, we launched in September and it's basically we're we're a super PAC in order to highlight the national security concern of a second Trump presidency. We are pro-democracy. And the, the reason behind this is a lot of Americans, you know, they, they won't necessarily listen to political people. But they will listen to people who have been at the highest levels of national security, you know, retired admirals, generals, ambassadors, that sort of thing, who really come from both sides of the aisle. Many of these folks have worked in Republican administrations and have come together and said, look, normally we don't wade into politics. We don't really want to wade into politics, but this is bigger than politics, And we have to defend our democracy right now. And we have to stand up and talk about the the uh, threat to democracy that Trump and Trumpism pose. And so what I did was I I came to them and said, let's do this together. Let's call it Operation Saving Democracy. Let's um, get people involved. And at the end, make sure that voters in swing states know and, you know, the threat to our democracy. And here, you know, who you're going after are those those people that care about our, our, our defense, care about our country. They're not necessarily super partisan. They may lean to the right. But you know what? The Republican Party has been, is discrediting itself uh, pretty much on a weekly basis on national security. Between Tuberville's antics to um, the calls for bombing Mexico, to the fact that Donald Trump tried to overthrow a free and fair election and allowed our capital to be uh, invaded for the first time since the War of 1812. Mm. These types of things we need to remind voters about. And the using trusted messengers, that's the point of Operation Saving Democracy to do that. Yeah, it's the trusted messengers part, right? I remember when I I got together with the Vote Vets organization to come to Washington to lobby to fund Ukraine, uh, which is, I think, another giant part of how we need to save our democracy here. We have to protect democracy abroad to preserve it here at home and vice versa. And a lot of folks 
that listen to to this podcast have asked me, how do we get the message out of what an authoritarian regime would look like in the United States? And I think that your PACs are doing a lot of work toward that messaging, like kind of how it would how it would appear. You know, I, I recently talked to Miles Taylor about what Trump was planning to do to the Department of Veterans Affairs if he had a second term. And the only way he was talked out of it was when they said, you're not going to get elected again if you run on this. So maybe don't uh, maybe don't do that. And maybe then you can gut it in your second term. I think a lot of people don't realize what it would look like in a second Trump term or, you know, under um, someone who practices Trumpism, for example. Yeah. And, and it's really important to show the concrete things that could happen. Not only the things that he's already said could happen, but the things that they are actively planning for in uh, uh, things like Project 2025. Um, Let's just take one piece of that, the military. Okay, our military is apolitical. We we have, by the way, one of the most non-corrupt militaries in the world. That's one of the reasons we are so good. Uh, China has a huge problem with corruption. Russia has a huge problem at the high ranks with corruption. We are not corrupt. And, you know, we have this this military that has been subservient to uh, the commander in chief, has been apolitical for uh, 200 some years. Now you have Donald Trump, who has said that he would uh, should execute the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mm. because the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff did what? He, He followed the Constitution. I mean, that's. Trump wants complete loyalty. So imagine a military where where he just won't promote uh, any general or admiral who isn't a sycophant. And what does that do? It allows these these um, sycophant you know leaders to then lead an entire military where you know in the military that there people are going to follow orders. You know, there's we we we. We want to follow the Constitution and we teach that. But at the end of the day, I mean, what, what is that second lieutenant going to do who is a pilot of a Black Hawk helicopter when Trump says, hey, I want you to use those helicopters to uh, go down and scare the protesters at the Women's March? I want you to uh, go fly over there and, and shoot uh, American civilians who happen to be protesting. The, maybe, maybe Black Lives Matter. Let's just just go shoot them. You know, defense former Defense Secretary Esper said that Donald Trump wanted to do that and was talked out of it. In a second Trump presidency, he will not be surrounded with the Espers or the Mattises anymore. No more Kellys. No more General Kellys. He will have only sycophants and he will make those orders. And that's the kind of real thing that, that moves us into this uh, breaking of this amazing tradition that we have between the trust of the American people and their own military. And that is just one example of what Trump would do. Just one. Yeah. I mean, the the list is long and he's he's outlined it. He's behind Project 2025, which you brought up, which we've covered extensively on this show. So listeners are familiar with that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the mission of Operation Saving Democracy. We've got defend America's democracy, strengthen the U.S. as a democratic nation, defeat Trumpism at the ballot box, and amplify the voices of respected national security leaders. Let's talk a little bit about your work specifically to defeat Trumpism at the ballot box. There's been extensive work on that front and very successful work. Well, you know, there's lots of ways to do it. And and we we 
you know, there's lots of organizations that that tackle different angles of this, right? There's organizations out there that want to go out and get out to vote to get more uh, people out to vote, and they're thereby thinking that you know more Democratic votes will will be out there, and we can defeat them that way. There is not one right answer to this. One piece in my mind, in the minds of many of these national security leaders um, and others, is that there's an opening right now to communicate to voters who have historically been Republican due to the Republican Party's traditional role as the party of national security, the party of veterans, the party of a strong defense. Um, And these voters are not your normal Democratic Party voters, but you can have an independent expenditure set up to communicate to these voters in swing states um, one run by this community of veterans and know how to speak to to uh, people that care about national security in this way. You know, national security and, and pro-democracy is never the number one issue on people's minds when they do polling on president, but it's up there. It's up there. And there is a group of people where they really care about this stuff. And that's the target group. If you think about states like Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona, we're talking tweaking by a win here with like less than one or 2%. So if you look at one or 2% of voters who can be swayed by this issue, that's enough. And so you got you to gotta go after every single angle. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about that gentleman who, you know, they interviewed um, on TV, on CNN or whatever, a, a couple of months ago, who's, a, who's a, a senior citizen. He has a Navy cap on and he's up there at the Republican talking to the Republican uh, uh, primary candidates in New Hampshire. He's a Republican. And he said to um, the candidate Scott at that time, Scott, of course, Tim Scott has dropped out since then. But he said to him, you know, if you can't stand up to Donald Trump, how are you going to stand up to Vladimir Putin? (laughs) That's the kind of guy we want. Because he's a guy who is a Republican. He thinks of himself as a Republican his whole life but he cares about a strong defense. He cares about a strong America. He fought the Cold War and won it. And Mm -hmm. we have to remind him the current Republican Party under mega, under Trump, is not the party of national security anymore, the one that you used to vote for under Ronald Reagan. And so that is a strong message. It's not targeted to every voter, but it's targeted to them. And it's important. Yeah. And I think some of these issues are, you know, not just preserving democracy, but like you said, the war in Ukraine, funding Ukraine um, to to basically beat back autocracy, um, but also uh, some autocracy homegrown here in Texas with Kate Cox not being able to seek an abortion. That is what it will look like nationally under under autocratic rule. They want to have a national abortion ban. They want to control women and their bodies. And I think that maybe amplifying these actual pockets of autocracy that are popping up in our own country and on the front lines of the war uh, against autocracy in, in Ukraine, I think that that we really can speak to and reach out to those kind of voters. I want to talk more about this, but I, Amy, I need to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We're talking with Amy McGrath. Uh, Amy, before the break, we were talking about reaching a certain kind of voter. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, to reach that kind of voter? Because things are pretty scary right now. 
Yeah, it's it's really scary what's happening right now. And, and when you think about voter suppression, you talk about um, the mega folks who, you know, claim they're, they're for rule of law. And when you point out all the ways that they're not for rule of law, this this affects people. And we have to keep talking about it. You know, people have busy lives and they're out there doing lots of different things. And so if you don't continue to talk about it, it kind of goes into the back of their mind. You know, my, my my belief about how the Republicans right now, what, what are they doing on these things like impeachment? And what are they doing with things like, you know, trying to say that, that Hunter Biden's uh, car loan back to his dad is somehow corruption, uh, somehow the same as, as all of Donald Trump's corruption? There's a reason why the Republicans do this. Those of us like you and I and probably your listeners know that that is just completely not even in the same ballpark, but the low information voter who only watches politics when they go into the barber and only sees the ticker line on Fox News, that's a way to get them to um, not believe in any party, to not believe in their institutions. I can't tell you, I ran for Congress and ran for U.S. Senate here in, in Kentucky. I can't tell you how many times People have come up to me and have said, you know, I don't really follow politics that much. And then when we would talk about folks like Trump and corruption and lies, you know what they would say to me? Well, Joe Biden does it, too. They all do it. Look at he's being impeached, too. Look at he, he's corrupt, too. Look at Hunter. They don't know anything other than the top line. And that is the tactic that the Republicans are going to use. And it's going right to the trust of the voter. And that's where you have to, as as somebody that's trying to counter that, continue to show the truth. And I think that's the importance of journalism and advocacy. You know, I saw an interview with Maddow when she was on MSNBC being interviewed about her uh, ultra podcast about when autocracy was afoot on our shores, um, it, you know, back uh, World War II times. And she said, look, there's no magic bullet here, right? The, the, our our democracy, our guardrails need to be firing on all cylinders. Journalism, advocacy, like you're talking about, the courts, the ballot, politics, all of it has to be working together in conjunction. And, you know, I often think of, you know, when you spread out pressure uh, over a larger area, you get you get less pressure. And I think that that's what these guardrails are. And so I really appreciate your work, especially in the advocacy, policy and journalism uh, aspects of this, because getting the truth out there and shining a light on these things is is, I think, the best thing we can do for these types of uh, voters that you're talking about and how we can all work together, even though, you know, like like they said, we can after this, we can go back to our corners. Yeah. And have our policy debates, but but the the corners disappear if we don't do this now. We're in the fight of our lives for our democracy, and we don't want to wake up and say, "Wow, I wish I would have donated a hundred bucks to, <laughs> to something like Operation Saving Democracy," you know, or to some other um, organization that helps get out to vote or something like that, because th this is. This is our country. And it's, it's not only our country, it's the country I want to give to my children, to my two sons and my daughter. And I am so, I've always been patriotic. I'm, I'm somebody that loves American history. I have so much respect for the greatest generation. But you know what? 
the greatest generation fought and died for the world order that we enjoy, for this country today that we enjoy that is not perfect, but could have been taken over by um, Nazis, by you know communism during the Cold War. And they, they stood firm and created this world and fought for it. And we, here we are on the verge of like losing it because the Republican Party wants to play politics right now because they don't want Joe Biden to win something. So they don't want to give Ukraine the pennies that they need. And it is pennies to uh, defend themselves. And that is basically on the verge of, of that whole world order collapsing because we can't get off our rear ends and, and, and pay the pennies that we need to pay to you, for Ukraine to defend itself. And I'm really worried about that as an American. Yeah, blew my mind. I mean, it's less than, what, 4% of uh, of our defense budget. And and I'm sorry, I'll spend half the defense budget if we don't have to put boots on the ground. Like, why, why are we even having this discussion? It makes no sense to me. That's what we were advocating for when we went a couple of months ago. And here we are in the same position again, perhaps at, at a, the precipice uh, because of Republicans at a, abandoning our allies, uh, which, you know, going back to your national security argument, really uh, pulls the rug out from under uh, the United States as as a, a reliable partner and a reliable ally. And it's shameful that we would do that, especially in light of what our, you know, our previous generations have gone through to protect and preserve. So, Everybody, if you want to get into this fight, you need to go to operationsavingdemocracy.org. You need to follow Amy on all the socials because you know, she's always posting about this fight, what we can do, and it's not just it's not just saying what the problems are. There are concrete actions that we can all take and participate in to help save democracy. Uh, are there any final thoughts that you have Amy before we get out of here today? Yeah, I just I would just say on Ukraine, um, you know, we, we're on the verge of potentially losing this strategically. And the Ukrainians have won tactically. They are winning. Remember, they weren't supposed to last three days. God, they've taken out 90% of Russia's they forces. They are doing tremendous. They are winning. We, we, If we stop aid to them right now, it would be just the most heinously terrible thing to do. Not only the shame, uh, but also they're winning. They simply need more ammunition to continue to win. Uh, more weapons, you know, more more rockets, more HIMARS, more ATACs, all that stuff. And and it's not that expensive. As you mentioned, it's less than 4% of our, our budget. It's basically, I did the math, it's about 75 bucks per American. That's it. I mean, that's that's not much to hold up the world order that the greatest generation fought and died for, for us. And I feel like this is such an important issue if you think about strategically what the Republicans are doing right now, if we pull away, that's exactly that's exactly what Vladimir Putin wants. Vladimir Putin and the Republicans... He's cheering this right now. He's cheering yeah, it. Yeah, he's cheering it. And the Republican Party right now and Vladimir Putin are aligned because they both want Biden to have a political loss. The Republican Party right now cares more about their own interest as a party and having Biden lose something than they do about the world order that the greatest generation fought and died for. That's that's where we're at. Um, and so I feel like, you know, anybody that's listening to this, 
really has to, to, to really understand that, absorb it, talk about it, um, contribute to organizations that are pushing Congress. And we can't let this go right now. We can't just say, well, Ukraine didn't get their, their weapons um, because it, it, it's so important. If we lose credibility in the world, China's watching, Iran's watching, the whole world is watching. And if we pull out aid to Ukraine, this is a country that um, gave up their nuclear weapons because we asked them to. And we said, give up your nuclear weapons and we'll take care of you. Uh, we'll, we'll protect your territorial integrity. And if we pull away from that, South Korea is going to get nuclear weapons, Japan, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, the list goes on. We will not be credible anymore. We will have lost all credibility as a world power and what the greatest generation built will be gone. Well, thank you so much. It's really been an honor to speak uh, with you and meet you. I've been I've been wanting to meet you now for so long since uh, since you popped up on our radar and we started raising money for your for your race there in Kentucky. And we hope you run again and we'll be there for you. Uh, everybody check out OperationSavingDemocracy.org. Thank you so much. We'll be back in your ears tomorrow with Neera Tandon and Victor Shi. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Take care of your family. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been AG and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. 
you will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.